ברוח אלוהים ומלא על נפשנו. הדרך אותנו כילדים רק אותך אנו חפצים, אנחנו מזמינים אותך לבוא. בוא, רוח אלוהים, come spirit of God and fill our souls. Lead us as your children, we only want you. אנחנו מזמינים אותך לבוא, we invite you to come. In Yeshua's name. Amen. I am here today to recruit some of you to a transformed life, a life of strange and wonderful intimacy with God, a life of power, a life of love, and a life of a sound mind. But long experience with the people of God tells me that there are three kinds of people here today. Some of you will immediately recoil, if not with repugnance, then with self-protective caution. You prefer that your life with God should be one where he comforts and reassures you without stretching you beyond your comfort zone. The second kind is some of us who will pervert the blessing God gives us by making it all about us, about how glorious we are because of the power of God resting on us. That's also not very good. But I've seen it. I continue to see it. And you'll see it too if you open your eyes. The third category, though, is those of us who would love to live a transformed life, a life of strange and wonderful intimacy with God, a life of power and of love and of a sound mind. We'd love it, but we're afraid that, we've been, that we're too insignificant. We're too flawed to be a candidate for that. If you're such a person, then I got good news for you. Above all others, you are prime real estate for God to build this. The 11th chapter of Hebrews lists the kind of people for whom God does these wonders. Let's look at some of them. Notice what losers these people were in their lifetimes. Abraham, he's 75 years old. He decides to pack up and move who knows where to follow a God nobody can see, who promised him that he's going to have children like the sand of the sea the, and like the uh, stars of the heavens, and he's 75 years old. And by the time he's 99, it's still all promises. What a loser. And then there's his son Isaac, who almost gets sacrificed on Mount Moriah. He's kind of weak and clueless later in life. He's outmaneuvered in his old age by his wife and by his son Jacob. And then Jacob, who was destined by God, but still he fooled his dad, and he fooled his brother, and he had to run out of town for 20 years to save his life. And he was skunked for those 20 years by his brother-in-law, Laban. What a loser. Joseph, his 11th, his 10th child, maybe his 11th because they had a sister named Dina, 
So there were 13 children, one girl, 12 boys. Joseph, the next to the last boy. He's the kid brother, betrayed by his siblings, who ends up a slave in Egypt, sold for a couple of bucks. Moses, he starts out as a baby floating in a basket. Later, he's a fugitive from Pharaoh's wrath. He flees to the middle of nowhere, Midian, where he does idiot work for 40 years. He's shepherding sheep, work in the Middle East that's given to little boys and senile old men. He spends 40 years in Midian tending his father-in-law's sheep. What a loser. Then we've got Rahab, the prostitute. Let's skip over that one. <laughs> then we have Gideon. Gideon is living at a time when the Midianites are dominating Israel. He's, when his story opens up, he's hiding in a pit, threshing wheat because he's terrified of the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Hail, almighty man of valor. And he says, Are you kidding? My family is the least in Israel. I am the least in my family. Some man of valor. Then we've got Barak. All of these people are listed in the list of heroes in, he in Hebrews. Barak. Barak is afraid to fight Israel's enemies, and he tells Deborah the prophetess, I'm not going unless you go with me. She says, very impressive. I'll tell you what. Uh, God is going to conquer your enemies, but, but to, to show you that wimping out was not exactly a good idea, he's going to deliver your enemy into the hands of a woman. This is meant to be humiliating. It's Yael, the Kenite, a foreigner who vanquishes uh, the, the enemy of Israel. Samson. Samson's a skirt chaser. He's a spoiled child. His parents are rather old when he's born. He becomes an immature adult, self-centered. He ends up forfeiting his great strength. And in the words of John Milton, he ends up grinding at a mill, eyeless in Gaza. His eyes are point, put out. He's grinding at a mill like an ox. And he's taken for entertainment into the temple, the pagan temple of Dagon, so that all the Philistines can laugh at this poor loser. Then David. David is the youngest of seven sons. When his story opens, opens up, he's the kid out with the sheep, uh, uh, out tending the flocks. He's a dreamer, not to be taken too seriously. Later, he's an adulterer and a murderer. These are the people of whom the letter to the Hebrews says, through trusting, they conquered kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they received what was promised, they shut the mouth of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they had their weakness turned to strength, they grew mighty in battle, and they routed foreign armies, people of whom the world was not worthy. Every one of them was considered a loser at some time in their story. These were judged pathetic people, people just like me and just like you. But these were people whom God used gloriously. And this could be you. Jephthah, otherwise known in Hebrew as Yiftach, 
Yiftach is the subject of today's Haftorah. He's also in this list. Let's look at him for a while. There are lessons for us to learn. He'd been driven away uh, by his half-brothers who despised him because he was the son of a prostitute and not of their mother. He's banished from Gilead, where apparently nobody in Gilead bothered to stand up for his defense. He ends up in the land of Tov, which means good, but it was a bad place to be. He was exiled in disgrace there still. Remember this. God can turn the bad places in your life to good. That's what he does with Yiftach. He becomes something of a gang leader out there. He leads a marauding band of uh, brigands, and they attack Israel's enemies. His life takes an unexpected turn when the elders from Gilead send for him, and they, and they be beg him to come back and help them to fight the Ammonites who have occupied their land. They recognize his leadership capacities, and they're well aware of his reputation. Now, they need his help. Jephthah questions, Yiftach questions the elders' motives. He says, excuse me, aren't you the guys who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? However, the leaders of Gilead give him an offer he can't refuse. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be the head over all who live in Gilead. Yiftach is no dope. He requires of them to articulate clearly the nature of their promise to him, to go on record for why they need him. Then he has them repeat the offer and its specifics. This is the equivalent of having someone put things in writing in the presence of a notary when they come to you for something or hire you. Finally, he ratifies these things with them ceremonially taking the people before God and, and making God a witness to this agreement. He's not stupid. Then he goes into action. First, he tries to resolve the problem using diplomacy. But the king of the Ammonites falsely accuses him of having stolen uh, him and Israel. He accuses Israel of having stolen their land centuries earlier, as, uh, as Joshua was telling you. Clearly, this king is looking for a fight, and Yiftach responds that the Israelites had taken no land from the people of Ammon, but from the other peoples around them who had been hostile to them. He's clear on his history. He knows his facts, and he simply cannot be bamboozled. The king of the Ammonites is not interested. And then notice what happens. We read this. Fatahi al-Yiftach ruach Adonai. Then, the spirit of Adonai came upon Yiftach. He marched through Gilead and Manasseh, passing Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead, he crossed over to the Ammonites. This is significant for us now. Living on this side of the resurrection, even more than for Yiftach, when he was doing the work he was called to do, the spirit of God came upon him. 
We're living in that time after which Yeshua has poured out the Spirit of God on all flesh. The Spirit of God is here. The Spirit of God is not remote. The Spirit of God surrounds us. And he lives within us if we trust in Yeshua. And he's willing to fill us and to fall upon us and use us in extraordinary ways. It's truer for us than it was for Yiftach, because we're living on this side of the resurrection. Now, the, the, the presence of the Spirit of God on you when you're there to do God's will, it's not always dramatic. Sometimes you won't even feel anything. But feelings are not what it's about. When the Spirit of God comes upon you at such times, it's in order to empower you to give weight to what you do, to change the world, change people's lives. I remember once I was, uh, we at Alvazion used to go to uh, a place in New Mexico, John, Ron Bernardo, remember the name of the place, I can't remember it, when they had a, a, a conference every year. And, uh, uh, and one time I'm there, and uh, I, I talked about the Holy Spirit. This is 30 years ago. And I was praying for a woman who was sick. I don't remember what it was. She was kneeling in front of me. I was praying for her. I felt nada, nothing. After I prayed for her, she, she said to me, did you feel the heat? I didn't feel anything. But she felt it. And when you are serving God, you may not feel anything. But if you're in the place that God wants you to be, if you're doing what God has called you to do, if you're doing what your gifts and natural abilities and acquired skills have equipped you to do, you can bet on this. God is going to meet you there. And, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing better. Nothing. As I said earlier, I'm here today to recruit some of you to a transformed life. A life of strange and wonderful intimacy with God, a life of power, of love, a life of a sound mind. I'm here to recruit you to a life of availability to God, of abandonment to his service, a life of being filled with his spirit, taking your place as God's available servant. I ask you this question. Are you available or are you playing it safe? Again, as I said earlier, there are three ways people respond to this kind of proposition. The first two are these. Some of you will immediately recoil, if not with repugnance, then with reluctance uh, to get away from, to have self-protective caution, preferring that your life with God should be one where God comforts you and reassures you and doesn't stretch you beyond your comfort zone. And there'll be some of you who are just rip-roaring, ready to be known as the spiritual hotshot in your circles, because it's going to be all about you. You're going to say, praise the Lord, but really going to say, look what I got. These, these two candidates are not exactly candidates for the best of what God wants to give. Yiftach makes that second mistake, the second mistake of being too impressed with his own glory. He tells God that if God will give him victory over the Ammonites, he will sacrifice to him whatever comes first out of his house to greet him. That's not part of today's Haftorah. It comes immediately afterwards. He says, I'll tell you what, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll give me victory over the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of the house to me is yours. <laughs> so he leads the attack on the Ammonites. His attack is successful. 
It results in the devastation of 20 towns. But the first thing to come out of his house to greet him after his victory is his young daughter. But he's made a vow to God. And when you make a vow to God, that's it. Some people believe that he did not have to offer her up as a blood sacrifice, but rather that because of her vow, she could never marry and had to live as some sort of servant of God's presence at the tabernacle. That's very possible. The problem is Yiftach got too juiced up on his own juices, and he made a very stupid mistake. When God raises us up to, be, to positions of power, when God uses us, there is always a danger of getting too cute. I've done that in my life. I want you to know the cost is, is extraordinary. Don't get cute. Don't get impressed with yourself. It's not about you. It never was. It's about him. But beyond this sad story, we should not miss how Yiftach's career teaches us important lessons for our lives. So I want to take you some very positive lessons. First, God often brings victory through despised and marginal people, through outsiders. In fact, Dr. Paul Pearson, who I studied with, who's an expert on spiritual renewal movements, he says that, uh, that God generally brings renewal from the margins, not from the people in the center of power, but from the marginalized people. Are you a marginalized person? Well, God can use you. And if you're not a marginalized person, if, uh, if you're a person with connections and with opportunities, then the word is expect more from God and expect more from yourself. Not necessarily more activities, but go deeper. Expect more from God. I'm 73 years old. I'm expecting things from God now that I never dreamed of during the first 50 years of my being a believer. It's, it's better now. It's, it's more challenging. It's more dynamic. It's more, more open heaven to me now than it was before. Uh, don't sell God short. And don't sell yourself short. More. Not less. The second lesson is that God can use your natural abilities for his glory. Yiftach was a leader of men. He was a gang leader who became a nation leader. You too have stuff to bring to the table. You're an organizational whiz. You have stuff to bring to the table. Bring it. The third lesson is that the same spirit that came upon Yiftach will enable you to win battles. The same spirit that raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you and will come upon you to empower you for whatever work God calls you to do. Here is what Peter says about Yeshua. He says this, God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh and with power. Yeshua went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. Yeshua did not do his miracles because he was the son of God. He did the miracles because he was anointed by the Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. He did it because he was anointed by the Spirit. 
And if you read Luke and Acts with open eyes, it's clear that the whole message of Luke and Acts, part of the message is that the same spirit that rested on him rests on you. Now, what are you going to do about it? That's a good question. And if you don't, if you haven't experienced this, then I'm going to get to that later. Here it is. I want to draw some lessons from Yiftach's name. Yiftach means he will open. Yiftach. I want to leave it today with two challenges growing out of his name. First, because Yiftach means he will open, this should remind us that God will open to us new opportunities of service. He will open to us new opportunities of holy encounter with him. As he fills us with his spirit, the spirit of whom Paul reminds us that God's spirit doesn't make cowards out of us. The spirit gives us power and love and self-control. That's the spirit that comes upon us. He makes us bold. He makes us powerful. He makes us able. God will use you to open prison doors and to set captives free. Yiftach, he will open. The second lesson from Yiftach's name is that God can use your, uh, sorry, that's the wrong one. God, that God should remind us that we must open ourselves to God and to the possibilities inherent in relationship with him. We must open ourselves. Your spirit, think of your spirit as that inner core of yourself, that, that, that irreducible place where you really begin. And we must open our spirits to God. We must invite him in to the, uh, the control room of our lives, the, the core of our being, the deeper than which one cannot go. We should open ourselves to God. At this stage of my life, after more than 50 years of knowing him, I'm doing all I can to open myself to the new possibilities inherent in knowing a God of infinite possibility. If we will open ourselves to him, if we will open ourselves to the opportunities to which he will point us, there is no telling what will open up in and through our lives. So I want to with two ideas that are not written here. First of all, for those of you who have never opened your life to Yeshua, the proposition is that Yeshua died for your sins. He rose again from the dead. He's now reigning in heaven with, with all of the universe uh, subject to him. He's the divine son of God. He deserves your obedience your adoration and, and your praise. Some of us tend to think, you know, I just don't want to give up my freedom. I got news for you. You don't know what freedom is. Um, uh, the Anglican liturgy speaks of God as the one whose service is perfect freedom. Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. You're going to serve the devil or you're going to serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. None of us is really free until we serve the right person. That's just the way it is. That's the human condition. So if you've never 
if, you, if, you, if you've never opened yourself up to Yeshua and said, come in, take your place, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm, uh, I, I recognize that the best I can do is mismanage my life. Uh, come in and, and let's get started. If you've never done that, I really pity you. I'm sorry for you. But I'll help you if I can. Now, for those of you who have done that, there's a second step. And that is that Yeshua is not just our Savior who kind of bails us out. But the Holy Spirit is sent in order to really empower us and direct us and to, and to activate our identity as servants of God. And all I ask you to do is this. Take time today to seriously say, God, I'm opening myself up to whatever your spirit wants to do with me. I invite your spirit to make himself manifest in my life. Uh, I don't want to just be a kind of a, a, of, of a person who's got a fire escape from hell, but who's basically still living up my life on the old scripts. Uh, rewrite the script. Uh, I want that kind of, of uh, ongoing, moment-by-moment moment life. It's a life of, of living life. Um, the best thing I can compare it to is it's what an ideal marriage is supposed to be. A very few marriages are this. An ideal marriage is a marriage in which two people join as one, and then they experience life out of a kind of a twin sense of identity. They, 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 live, they live life uh, in, in a kind of a bonded way. That's similar to what I'm talking about. So if you've never welcomed Yeshua, who died for you into your life, please, I'm not, I'm not gonna beg you, it's your life. But my please is, please, let's be, let's be, let's be real. I don't care who you are. Your life was not going that well. I knew a woman in San Francisco was a shrink. And she, she said, uh, everybody knows you're a sinner. And they spend the rest of their life either trying to disprove it or to, or, or to, or to run away from it. Everybody knows. I don't have to tell you you are. I have to tell you that you mismanage your life. So that's number one. Number two, I want you to invite the manager into your life in a deeper way. Yiftach, he will open. Are you open? I hope so. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, Rabbi.